very grateful member of the Al-Anon family groups. Tonight we're on step 11 in, uh, just a second, I'm opening my books. I'm going to be reading out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous because of the uh, fifth tradition of Al-Anon. And I'm going to be reading out of our uh, Al-Anon and AA 12 and 12 because of our group conscience. So we're all legal here. So I want to thank you all for asking me to do this. We're on the 11th step. We have one more to go. Now, when I was new in this program, I was told every morning when I got up to uh, report in to God every morning and uh, to read out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, starting it um, halfway down on page 86, read to the end of that paragraph, <clears throat> and then to uh, read the third and the seventh step prayer in the mornings and then to do any prayers that uh, I wanted to add in on my own, and then uh, go to the mirror and say, Good morning, Sue, I love you. And I've been doing that for almost 29 years, and it works. So in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says, it tells you exactly what to do in the mornings, and I like this. On awakening, we think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. It's just talking about just today. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonesty, or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties. It's implying that we have some. Because we've taken the second step. And so we've been restored to some kind of sanity. So, um, under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance. For after all, God gave us brains to use. And that's what a lot of people forget. We have a brain. At this point in our recovery, we're supposed to start using it. It has been uh, on hold for a long time. And uh, been asleep, and this step is highly indicates that we have one, we need to start using it. We do not anymore rely on our sponsors to do our thinking for us. There are things by this point in our program that we have been taught to do, and uh, we start doing that. Um, our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. And when I got to this point, when I got to this program, I did not know what a motive was. Uh, my sponsor had to explain that to me. Uh, today I think it's uh, not self-seeking like it used to be. It's more unselfish at this point in my life. So my motives today are totally different. Uh, they're really separated from uh, self-centeredness and self-seeking a lot. In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. 
Now, this is the catchy part. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration and intuitive thought or a decision. We relax and take it easy. I think they're talking about turning it over. We don't struggle, which to me means I don't ask for my way. We are often surprised how the right answers come after we have tried this for a while, and it works. <coughs> and the reason it works for me is because uh, when I shared on the tenth step, uh, and I forgot to mention this when I did the uh, tenth step, is there are spot checks that we take, inventory spot checks, uh, different ways that we can do them on a regular basis. There's three... Oh, Jesus. I'm on the 11th tradition. Would you like to hear on the 11th tradition? <laughs> Alrighty. The 10th step in the AA 12 and 12 talks about the different ways that we've been able to take on page uh, 89. It said, although inventories are like Alike in principle, the time factor does distinguish one from another. The first one, there's the spot check inventory, taken at any time of the day. So we look over our day and we look at, take an inventory of what's been going on so far. When we find ourselves getting tangled up. So that's one way of taking an inventory that takes discipline and consistency. Number two, there's the one we take at day's end, which is what most of us think that the uh, tenth step is. And then down a couple of lines is the third type. It said, when there are those occasions when alone or in the company of our sponsor or spiritual advisor, we make a careful review of our progress since the last time. So when we do that on a daily basis, by the time... We get to step 11. We ask for an intuitive thought or a decision. Now, there's been many times, <coughs> excuse me, that uh, this has worked for me. Um, the first few times, it's like I cleared my head. It goes on and, and we'll read the rest of it, see what to do to get there. But when I've cleared my head in my morning meditation and I have something going on and I concentrate on it I get an answer that I know I don't know where it came from and and the reason I get it is because God gave me a, a brain to use and I'm making this conscious contact with my God my motives are supposedly in the right place and I will get an intuitively intuitive thought like, oh, wow, that's really cool, you know. I could do that. And so when that happens to me, I always run it by a sponsor. And my sponsor talks to me a lot about the gut feeling. I've had them before. I had them before the program, but I was always told in the active disease of alcoholism that I was always wrong. And so um, I have more confidence in that my relationship with my God and, and in my program today that I know those intuitive thoughts but I still check it out with the sponsor and uh, 
learn know what I came up with. And a lot of the times, when most of the time when that happens to me, my sponsor's in agreement with it. But I don't um, want to run on self-will anymore. And that's why I have a sponsor. <coughs> what used to be a hunter, occasional inspiration, gradually becomes a working part of the mind. And this takes time, and you must practice it daily in order to get to that point. Being still inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times. We might pay for this presumption and all of sort of absurd actions and ideas. That means that a lot of our good ideas are not. And that's why we have sponsors. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely on it. And so if I don't have that prayer meditation time, uh, when I get up in the mornings, I make time for it. Because I don't want to go back into the indecisions, uh, all those occasional hunches that come up and run on self-will anymore. We usually conduct, we usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be. We can ask for that, and that's not selfish, because we're asking for help. That we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. We ask especially for freedom from self-will and are careful to make no requests for ourselves only. Now, I believe that we can make requests for ourselves, but not only ourselves. And I think by the time we get this point, we're thinking of others. We're thinking of our families. We're thinking about um, jugheads that we work with. Uh, we're thinking about uh, people we sponsor. You know, um, We may ask for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. So if I'm sponsoring somebody, I can ask that the person that I'm sponsoring be helped with to get through whatever they're going through. We are careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that, and it doesn't work. You can easily see why. And it goes in to ask uh, wives and friends to join us for morning meditation. It says, we sometimes, and I have written in here, step 11 is just asking God for the right thought or direction and then relax and take it easy and and listen. The answer will come. Clear mind, do something else. Now, when I was new, where I had about six years in the program, I was down in Texas, and there was a long-timer down there uh, by the name of Marcy White. She was Octavia's sponsor, and uh, she just passed away a few years ago. And a lady went up to her and said, I want to get more into the spirituality of this program. She said, I have a hard time concentrating when I'm doing my 11th step in the mornings. And Marcy said to her, when you're doing your prayer and meditation, especially when you, the prayer gets your mind set 
for meditation. When you're quiet and you ask for the intuitive thoughts and that kind of thing, you sit quiet and you wait and answers will come, just like this says. At, um, Marcy said, if you're sitting there trying to meditate and all this stuff pops up in your head, oh, i got to pick up the cleaning today. i got to go to the store. i got to pick up this. i got to do that. She said, write it down on a piece of paper and get it out of your head and go back to concentrating on your relationship with God. If circumstances... Oh, there are many helpful books, and it talks about that. Make use of what they offer. And I use other um, meditation books um, besides my One Day at a Time, My Courage to Change, and the big book. Um, I have two other books that I use that are non-conference-proved material. But one of them is one that um, explains the Bible and is God's interp- is man's interpretation of God's Word. And I like that. It helps me to understand things that they tried to teach me in Sunday school and in church that I could not hear. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right ta- thought or action. Um, a girl called me yesterday, I can't remember if it was yesterday, or it was today, and she said, you know, I'm not having a good day. And she said, uh, she lives close to where she works, and she said, I think at noon, you know, when I get off work, I'll go home and I'll get on my knees and I'll pray again. And I said, why don't you just go in the bathroom and do it right now? I've done that many times, many times, to get my head straight with the confusion or irritation that's going on when I was working, and it worked for me. We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show. That's talking about self-will and thinking that we ask, we have all the answers for everybody else except us. Humbly, which means I don't know anything, teach me, I'm teachable. Humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will be done. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become more efficient. We do not tire so easily. Newcomers come in here just like me. Uh, People say, how do you feel? I go, I am tired. I am just so tired. And as I started applying this program in my life and, and my sponsor taking me through the steps, I became more alive and I, um, I had more energy. And it's spiritual energy. We are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. I look back on my life and I think of all of the energy and time I wasted trying to make things happen that never, ever happened. Uh, Chasing a drunk is really a waste of time. You get tickets and arrested and all kinds of stuff, especially if you're driving in parks and all that kind of stuff. They They don't like that. And then it says it works. It really does. It confirms this for us. We are we alcoholics, and I believe Al-Anons, are undisciplined. So we let God discipline us in the simple way we have just outlined. But this is not all. There is action and more action. Faith without works is dead. 
That means that if if you choose to not work a program, you're not going to have one. Nobody can make us work a program. People can explain to us how to work a program. They can take us through the steps and explain the steps to us. We can take those steps. But if we don't apply it to our lives, it will go away. And I have faith because I have very many reference points that uh, this thing works. Uh, I've shared with you uh, earlier um, how disastrous our lives were uh, when we got to this program. My relationship with my daughter was horrible. I took a lot of the violence out of my daughter. It punished her in very extreme ways screamed and yelled and hit her and did all that kind of stuff and she hated me she she would say to people i hate her guts when we got first got this program and people would say to her you and your mother look so much alike she go oh please don't say that i hate her guts and that's where we came from because of the steps of this program yesterday when I was talking to my daughter and she was talking to me about our granddaughter and she said to me um, I my granddaughter's name's Nicole and she said I always I want to have the kind of relationship with Nicole where I'm always her confidant I don't ever want her to be afraid to tell me anything or share anything with me and she said uh, I said well She's going to start kindergarten, real school, the end of this year. And I said, there will be things that she'll go through that you won't find out until later. It just happens. It's natural. She said, no, I'm not talking about that, Mom. She said, I want her to be able to come to me when she needs help or she has a problem or anything. She said, I want a relationship with her like you and I have. And that's a hell of a long way from where we came from. And it's the result of this program, because our daughter's still in the program, really still works a program. When it talks about faith without works is dead, it's talking about obedience to the unenforceable. And in the very beginning of the traditions in the Al-Anon 12 and 12, it talks about that. It's... Um, It's on page 86 of the Al-Anon 12 and 12. It said, the traditions are not rules. There are no rules. Does everybody hear that? There are no rules. If somebody, if you newcomers, if somebody tells you that's a rule, it's BS. There are no rules. Somebody's made it up. There are no rules, no must in Al-Anon. But if you read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's something like 58 must in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the first 164 pages. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is very serious about this being a life or death program. And I think what they're uh, saying in the Al-Anon book is that when they say there are no must, is that nobody's going to be, there are no enforcers in here that is going to make you do anything. Alcoholism is the enforcer. 
So if you don't want to do what we're required to do and get the gifts that we're granted from these steps when we do them, you will keep getting back in the disease of alcoholism. And it's a progressive disease, so your life will get worse. Accepting the guidance of the traditions has been described as obedience to the unenforceable. No one in our fellowship has the authority to say, you should not do this or you must do that. So that's what it's talking about, obedience to the unenforceable, and the unenforceable is God. It's our loyalty, our faith, and our trust in a power greater than ourselves. And God doesn't make us do anything. When I look back over my life of all the things that I did and all the things that happened before I got here, God let me do all of that stuff. And all that stuff that I did was necessary in order for me to hit a bottom. Every bit of it was necessary for me to hit a bottom. And God allowed me to do all those things. He didn't come down and say, Sue, stop that. He gives us free will. It's a gift of God's. Now, the disease of alcoholism, which can be associated with the devil, will always tell you, go ahead and do that. It's okay. You deserve to do that. You've made enough sacrifices. You Read that poem on the back of the wall, I Am the Disease. It is so true. And if you've ever seen that movie, it's a favorite movie of mine, Devil's Advocate. At the very end of that movie, uh, Al Pacino's the devil. And he t- he's telling uh, Keanu Reese, I was always there for you. I was always there patting you on the back. I was always there telling you you were doing the right thing. It was okay. He said, God's an absentee landlord. That's what God is. Well, God is an absentee landlord because he, isn't, uh, he doesn't make us do anything we don't want to do. He gives us the freedom of self-will. So if you want to keep what you're getting, if you're new in this program, keep doing what you're doing. If you don't want to have what you got before you got to this program, then these steps must be worked and applied to our lives. So um, I have, um, I love this uh, step. I remember um, when we were going through the 10-year surrender, and uh, I did my morning meditation all the time and I got to a point and uh, and Keith was going through that surrender and I was right in there with him and I got to the point with my prayer and meditation of knowing what freedom was and that everything in God's world was not happening by mistake and Keith had gotten caught for being involved with organized crime for over 20 years. He had 10 years sober. That meant he had been doing that for 10 years before he got to this program. And I was devastated because he was 10 years sober and he was still doing the same things he had done before he got here. And AA had not fixed him. What I had to realize is that AA had fixed him because he was sober. 
but he had some things in his life that he had to change in order to stay sober. And he made that choice. But going through the process that I went through with all of this is uh, I had I was able to go, I was asked to go to a convention up in Canada in Shear. And it was a breakfast, Sunday morning they had a big breakfast out in the woods and inmates came there from prison and this huge Indian that was bigger than the pines up there, uh, he had been sober six, eight years. And the the penal system up there had so much confidence in this man and his 12-step work within that prison with alcoholics that they put him in charge of other inmates that came to that breakfast every year. And this guy talked about freedom. He was a lifer. And he talked about freedom. And when he said that, it clicked in me. It's going to be okay. And Keith was looking at five years. And uh, it was okay with me. I thought, okay, I heard that Indian guy share, and he just grabbed my insides. And uh, it came to me that if Keith is supposed to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous in prison, it's okay with me. And uh, I believe that's an intuitive thought. And when I got home from that conference and Keith was complaining about what was going on with him, I said, babe, you know, that it might be it might be where it's meant to be that you carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous in prison. Oh, well, that's easy for you to say. You ain't looking at five years. But up until that point, my decision, my the things that were going through my head was, if he goes to prison, do I sell the house? Do I get a divorce? Do I stay with him? Do I do this? Do I do that? You know, what happens in five years? I can't handle this load by myself. You know, what's going to happen to me? Me, 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 me. And then it came to me that it's okay wherever we are as long as there's sobriety. That it will get better. Physical sobriety for Keith, the alcoholic, and emotional sobriety for me, the Al-Anon. And I believe I have emotional sobriety. And that example of that lifer standing there in those woods talking about freedom, I knew that freedom was not a place where we live. I knew it was a feeling on the inside. And I share that now a lot in the in the women's prison that I go to every month. And uh, Chris and I went out there this last Wednesday. And this year is the first year in years, in about 20 years, that the inmates have not been able to have an A.A. Allen on banquet at Christmas time out there because of state funding. And uh, so they didn't get anything. And the inmates were pretty upset about it at the time. And... Uh, so this last Wednesday night, they let them have, instead of having a regular meeting, they let them have a fun night. And they had taken those snack baggies and put all kinds of candy in them, or they put popcorn in them. 
and they would have a group of people get up on each side, and it seemed to me like they were playing like a family feud when we first got there. And uh, then the team that got the most right answers, all of them would get a bag of candy and a bag of popcorn, you know. Then they started playing American Idol. <laughs> and God, that was funny. You know, this one girl that won was horrible. She was horrible. And they gave her a bag of candy and her popcorn. She was jumping up and down. I'm going to Hollywood. I'm going to Hollywood. You know, and it was so funny. But the spiritual part about that is that those women are in recovery in that prison. Most of them lifers. And my God, the experience of watching them laugh and have fun was awesome. Because 20 years ago, they couldn't do that. And last Wednesday night, they were. What a gift to see that kind of growth of this program and God in them in that prison. They were free for an hour. They weren't in prison for an hour. They were just people like you and I, enjoying life and having fun with each other. They were out of themselves. My God, what a risk that is to take in a prison, to not be on guard all the time. What growth that is. And it was just awesome to watch it. And a couple of gals came over and sat with Chris and I, and this one gal's 27 years old. She's been in there since she was 19, and she gets out in June, and she's afraid. And she said, I'm afraid because I'm going back to my family and they're all, uh, they're all very sick. They're all gang-related. And she told me all different kinds of things that they were involved in because of Hispanic gang stuff and things that they had done. And she said, I'm afraid to go to that family. But I have a little boy waiting on me and I can't get my little boy back unless I go to that family. And I said, where do they live? And I started praying. And she said, La Puente. And I said, my God, you're going back to hell. You're safer in here than there. She said, I know that. She said, what do you think? And I said, if your family's that sick, you'll never make it. You will absolutely never make it. And I said, this prison has contacts to help you get in a woman's step house or a safe house with your little boy. I suggest you do that. And she said, thank you. I know how strong you feel about this program about recovery, and I knew you would have some suggestions for me. And I said, if you choose to go to your family, you can, but I'll see you later because they come back in when they go right back to that old environment. Uh, another lady came up to me that was one of the Manson girls and uh, told me about her mom being sick. And her mom keeps having dreams about her when she was 19 years old. This woman's in her early 50s now. And she said, my mom keeps having dreams about when I'm 19 years old. And she, when she comes to see me, she'll say, don't run around with those people anymore. They're bad for you. She said, my mom's never forgotten that. 
and now that she's older and she's getting like Alzheimer's, she said, it's so sad because that's what she remembers about me. And I said, bless her heart. She doesn't know the lady that I know sitting beside me right now. How sad is that? Those ladies will never be forgiven for what they did. They'll never get out. But she's at peace with herself because she has chosen to have obedience to the unenforceable in there. And it's not the guards, it's her God. And she's a very good 12-stepper in that prison. That is totally a God story that I'm so grateful that I get to be a part of it and the ladies from here that go in there get to be a part of And uh, those are the kind, an intuitive thought. When I left Canada up there and heard that man, I knew that Keith was looking at five years in prison before I get uh, forget he was released of all of that. They did not convict him. They let him go. He was just loose before then. After that, he was a free man. But uh, when I was up there, I also had the intuitive thought, I relate with the kind of ladies that end up in prison. Al-Anon had never in Southern California had an Al-Anon panel in a prison. And uh, for three years, I would ask H&I coordinators if they would check at that woman's prison to see if we could get an Al-Anon panel in there. For three years, I never gave up on it. Now, I think I could have gone to that prison and contacted the right people and gotten a panel in there, but that would have been Sue Drum's panel. I did it through H&I because I wanted it to be Al-Anon panel. And they eventually got in there, and the lady that was the H&I coordinator at that time invited me to go in there with her, and she had two other ladies with her. Uh, she was the kind of uh, Al-Anon that was... Uh, a housewife, uh, her husband was a couch drunk, and uh, they booed and hissed her. What, in, what do you got to offer us? And the other two ladies shared similar type stories and having problems with their kids, and they were so what? And when I got up and shared, they went, oh, my God. And the H&I coordinator turned around to me and she said, Sue, this is your panel from now on. And I've gone in there consistently for 20 years. Never in 20 years have I missed a meeting. There's been times that they have called and they have not had a meeting in that, but that was the prison's decision, not mine. And I've been in there every time. And when I first walked in that room Tuesday night and saw that they were doing that, um, I had the thought, and I think I even said it to Chris, they could have called us and told us that we didn't need to come tonight at all. That way we wouldn't have had to fight the traffic and take an hour to drive out there, you know, and an hour to get back. They're wasting our time. And then we got to sit there and watch those ladies, and what a gift that was. I would have missed that gift of seeing the efforts over recovery being taken in that prison for over 20 years. I would have 
not received the gift of seeing recovery working live and well in that prison. So I don't know what's best for me still. But God does. I had a commitment and I went and did it. It was different than it was supposed to be, but what a gift it was to see that. That's how God works in my life. Now, also, if you want to pray and meditate and you're having a problem and hard time making a decision, I will share with you something that I do and have done. I don't do it very often because I don't abuse it and I don't want to take it for granted. But there's been times in my life that I say, God, I don't know what to do. Show me. And when I was six years in this program and I went back to make amends to my mother and I was staying there for two weeks, uh, Keith's dad, Keith Sr., came and picked me up one night to take me to an AA meeting. My mom would not, the town that had an Al-Anon meeting was 27 miles away. She would not let me have her car to go there. She would not take me there. And so Keith Sr. called me one night and asked me if I wanted to go to an AA meeting with him that had an Al-Anon meeting in the same place. And I said, yes, I would. Thank you very much. And I was so excited. And my mom got so pissed at me. She goes, you're acting like a little teenager that's getting ready for a date. You're so excited to go see those people and you don't even know them. She didn't understand. And I didn't expect her to. And I went with Keith Sr. that meeting, and he took me back home that night. And my mom was sitting in bed reading like she always used to do when I was a teenager, and I'd come home for a date or from a movie or someplace. And I'd go in, and I'd sit on the edge of the bed with my mom, and I'd tell her about the movie or my date or whatever. And so that night after the meeting, she was sitting up reading, and I went in and I sat on the edge of her bed. I knew it was time for the ninth step. I'd been to a meeting. I was in good spiritual condition. My mom was in a good place. And she said, did you have a good time? And I sat there and told her about it. And uh, she said, I don't understand that. And I said, I know you don't, but it's okay. And I got to make my amends to my mother that night. And when I made my, got through making my amends to my mother, my mother said to me, I haven't always been the best mother that you probably would have liked to have had. And I've made some mistakes along the way. And I owe you some amends too. That's how you know when God is there. It feels right. There is no struggle, just like it talked in the big book. There is no struggle. And uh, after I was there for a few days, Keith Sr. called and said that... uh, He had a house up at Estes Park by Denver, and he said that uh, if I wanted to go over Beaver, Oklahoma, and stay with him for a day, then uh, the next day he was going up to Estes Park, and Madeline, his wife, was up there, and Shannon, his daughter, was up there, and did I want to go up there with them? And I said, "Uh, let me think about it. And, uh, And I wanted to go. I wanted to go so bad because if I was with him, I could go to meetings and I would have the freedom of my program. If I stayed with my mother, that was gone. 
But I'd gone there to make amends to my mom. And I remember it was uh, raining outside and it was hailing. And I went in my brother's bedroom where I was staying. And I looked out the window and I said, God, I don't know what to do. I came here to make love, not war, because I really felt my mom would be pissed at me if I took off, cut my visit shorter, and took off with Keith Sr. and went with him. And uh, and I'd be judged for that, and she'd give me a ration of hell for it. And, uh, and I stood at that window, and I said, God, I need a sign. I don't know what to do. I came here to make love, not war. Please help me. And I let go of it. And it's totally what it says to do in here. And I let go of it. And uh, that day happened to be my birthday. And my mom said, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, I want your fried chicken. You make the best fried chicken in the world. And she said, uh, if you'll make the potato salad, because you make good potato salad. And I said, okay. And let's make homemade ice cream, too. And she goes, great. And uh, so we started cooking, and I said, and my mother and brother ate every meal they ate on TV trays in their little TV room. And I said to Mom, I said, you know, beans we're fixing this big dinner, and it's my birthday, why can't we sit at the table and have dinner at the table together like a family? And she said, I think that's a great idea. And so my brother came home, and he'd lived with her forever. And uh, <laughs> he was so attached to my mother, it was so sick. When Keith was drinking, he used to call him Oedipus. <laughs> but he was just a little boy that my mother never let grow up. And he was devoted to her to the very end. He died at uh, 49 years old, mowing her lawn. He lived with her forever. We'd come home and give her his paycheck, and she'd deposit it, pay the bills and everything. It was like a husband and wife relationship, but they were mother and son. I never asked them if they slept together or anything. I did not want to know. I used to worry that my brother was going to be gay or that he was gay, and then I would pray that he would just participate. Yeah, took all of that judgmentalness away from me. So my brother was there, and he and that's the kind of person he was. And he came home from work, and he would say, "Oh, it smells so good." And my mom said, "It's Sue's birthday," you know, and she wanted fried chicken, blah blah blah. And uh, so he went in, and he took a shower, and he came back cleaned up, and he started getting the TV trays out, take them to the TV room. And my mother said, "No, no." It's Sue's birthday, and part of her birthday present is that she would like for us to sit at the table and eat like a family tonight. And my brother went off. He started yelling and cussing at me. When in the hell are you going to get out of here? You've been here for ten days, you monopolized mother, and you're trying to change our whole life. When in the hell are you going to go home? And my mother went, oh my God, Jack, what is wrong with you? And I said... It's okay, Mom. It's okay. I have overstayed my stayed my welcome. Now, what I thought when my brother did that is, whoa, God, i got to be an idiot to miss that sign. 
I mean, Jesus Christ, I'd ask God for a sign, and my brother comes in and tells me to get the hell out. <laughs> and my mother just thought it was horrible, and I said, no, he's, he's right. I've overstayed my welcome. And I said, you know what? I said, uh, I can call Keith Sr., and he's going to go to Estes Park, and I can fly out of Denver, and it won't be a problem. Oh, I hate that this has happened. And I said, no, Mom, it's okay. It's okay. He's uncomfortable. I didn't come here to make your lives uncomfortable. I came here to visit, and we've visited, and we're okay. And so I did that and uh, called Keith Sr., and he came and picked me up. I went and stayed a day with him in Beaver, and uh, then we headed out for uh, Estes Park. He got a phone call. And before we went to Estes Park, we went to this town right north of Denver. His cousin was in the hospital and with alcoholism. And they told him if he ever took another drunk, drink, his liver would blow up. And so he wanted to go see him in the hospital. Keith Sr. was sober then and going to AA, like I said, and... Uh, here I get to go with him to go to AA meetings and go to Estes Park with him and go to AA and Estes Park. But on the way, we stop to see his cousin that's in the hospital that is going to die of alcoholism if he doesn't quit drinking. And so we go there to see him and his wife is there. And she's crying, and she says, I don't know what to do. And I said, have you ever heard of a program called Al-Anon? Now, is that odd, or is that God? I asked God for a sign. I was told to get out. And then we take a trip to Estes Park, because it's nice up there, a pretty home, a good view, you know, up in the mountains, beautiful. But the purpose was that 12-step call. God had a purpose for us. And it was so awesome that my father-in-law and I got to do a 12-step call together. That's how I believe that God works in my life, that if I'm just willing and I ask God to help me, he does. And he uses me when I am open and willing. Thy will be done, just like it said. Okay, the principle of the 11th step is the power. Now, if you don't think there's power in our lives after sharing that story, then you would have been stupid standing in my mother's house too. That's what it means when it says God gave us brains to use. God gave us brains to use. Now, just a week ago, Keith was diagnosed with diabetes. And uh, <coughs> I went to the bookstore, and I bought him a book on diabetes, and I bought him a book on uh, calories and carbohydrate counts because he didn't know what a carbohydrate was. He knew what calories were, but he has never in his life paid attention to carbohydrates. He said, I can't eat sweets anymore. And he's sitting there eating a bowl of rice. And I said, you can't eat rice anymore either. Oh, yeah, right. 
I said, no, it's carbohydrates. The minute it hits your stomach, it turns to sugar. I said, white bread, potatoes, corn, rice, all of that stuff is not sweets. It's carbohydrates, and it turns to sugar in our stomach. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he sponsors these two guys. One of them called him, and he told him, you know, I just found out I had diabetes. And Chuck said, oh, you can't eat carbohydrates anymore. He goes, yeah, I know, I know. He said, I'm going to cut back on sweets and all that kind of stuff. And Chuck says, no, you don't understand. You can't eat carbohydrates anymore. And he said, yeah, you're right. That's what they said. And then he gets another call from Grumpy. And Grumpy says, whoa, man, you can't eat carbohydrates anymore. And everybody's telling him this. I've already told him. He didn't listen to me. And so he goes, uh, he asks Grumpy, what are carbohydrates? Grumpy said, anything with white flour in it, rice, pasta, potatoes, corn, anything that's white or yellow, you can't eat. He said, but rice is the worst thing in the world for you. And Keith's going, you're shitting me. (laughs) And he gets off the phone and he repeats that. Guess what Grumpy just said? And he repeats that whole conversation to me. Now, the old me would have gone, I tried to tell you that. You never listened to me. And I started laughing. He said, oh, so you think all of this is funny, huh? And I said, no. I am very grateful you talk to alcoholics all the time because you hear from them. I'm just a stupid shit. You don't hear anything from an Al-Anon. He goes, oh, babe, don't take it personal. (laughs) I said, I don't. I'm grateful you talk to alcoholics because you hear it from them. Yeah, and he does. You know, and so uh, he's getting it under control with food and exercise. And uh, and the neat part is, is that yesterday he went to a support group. And he was telling me about these people there. Most of them are very obese. And he said, it seems like to me that they're told they have diabetes. He said, because if I can't get this under control... With food and exercise, the next step is insulin. And he said, Sue, I can't shoot insulin. He said, I romanced that needle for years. He said, I can't go there. And he said, it seems like to me that these people were told that they had diabetes and they went the next step into shooting insulin and eat whatever they want to and shoot up with insulin and go, oh, well, this is a way of life. And he said, I asked the nutrition doctor, is mood swings part of this deal? And she said, yes, it is. And he said, because he said, she said, especially when your sugar level gets really high. And he said, I get angry. And she said, yeah, that's part of the deal. And he said, all those people looked at him like he was an idiot. And he said, and it dawned on him, they were all on medication. They didn't have a clue of what he was talking about. He's clean and sober. And he's having mood swings with his sugar level, and these other people are shooting insulin and non-mood-altering chemicals. They don't have a clue what he's talking about. He goes, Sue, I can't go there. And I said, you know what, babe? I don't think you have to. Because you've had over 28 years of very rigorous consistency and discipline in your life to just not drink on a daily basis. 
And if you can do that with alcoholism, you can do that with diabetes. He said, I think I can too. Now what's that remind you of? I talk to newcomers like that. I talk to people I sponsor like that. When I was new in the program, I was taught to treat the people in my home just like newcomers. And I shared that with him, and he said, thanks for the encouragement. He said, uh, and I said, I will support you, but I will not police you. He said, I appreciate that, babe. Now, see, he can go through those mood swings because of his diabetes, and he has a reason for doing that if he doesn't keep his sugar level under control. However, the thing that is so important for me to know about me is that my husband is an alcoholic. I have alcoholism because I caught it because I lived with an alcoholic. I'm the kind of Al-Anon that believes that I lived with an alcoholic, I caught alcoholism, and I have it. It's contagious. However, diabetes is not. And he's going through, uh, he can tell when he needs to eat, he can tell when he hadn't eaten the right thing, and he's telling all this stuff after a week, and he has gotten his blood sugar from 238 down to 137. And he's doing so well. But when he was going through those mood swings, I didn't know what it was, and my alcoholism was reacting to his diabetes because of the mood swings. And I had to work one hell of a program. And I'm so grateful I did because we got to find out what the problem was. And I hadn't ruined my marriage in the meantime because he'd been going through it for a couple of months before he found out what it was. So you see, I can't check, catch diabetes from him. He has it. And I believe that with because of the discipline and the consistency he's had in his life with alcoholism, I have hope that he might be able to overcome this other one. I don't have to worry about it because I can't catch it from him. But my alcoholism wants to react to his diabetes. And that's what I have to remember up here. Of who I still am, no matter what he's going through, who I am, and how I have to work a program, and how I have to act. It doesn't matter. Once we get alcoholism, it doesn't matter if they're diabetes, cancer, tuberculosis, whatever it is. My reactions are the same to everything because I have alcoholism. And I have to have a conscious contact with my God in order to have compassion for other things. Because the disease of alcoholism wants me to say, I'm out of here, I don't deserve this. Right? But God's saying, you don't have to fear anything. You don't have to worry about anything. God says in the 11th step, it is written in the AA 12 and 12 on page 99. Lord, make me a channel of thy peace. That where there is hatred, I may bring love. That where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. That where there is discord, I may bring harmony. That where there is error, I may bring truth. That where there is doubt, I may bring faith. And where there is despair, I may bring hope. 
that where there are shadows, I may bring light, that where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgiving that one finds. It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. It is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Now that's what I've been reading on a regular basis. And it works. It works. It is better to understand than to be understood. Keith wouldn't listen to me, but he... Listen to other alcoholics. I understand that. I understand that when we found out he had alcoholism, we studied the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He studied it in AA, and I studied it with my sponsor and my spiritual advisors to learn everything we can about the disease of alcoholism. Why would I not do that with another illness so I don't react to it, that I can take harmony, keep harmony in our home, that I can bring joy when he says he's down to 137, yay, babe. My God, what a difference in our lives. I believe there is nothing, nothing that God can overcome if we take the actions. If we take the actions to increase that conscious contact with God as we understand Him, there will be answers all along the way in every area of our life. It says in the AA 12 and 12 to say this over, over and over. Repeat the prayers that you want over and over that you say that will gear you toward thy will be done. It said just saying it over and over will often enable us to clear a channel choked up might be the serenity prayer. To clear a channel choked up with anger, fear, frustration, or misunderstanding. Do you know what that means? That means a channel that is choked up with anger, you focus on love. If it's choked up with fear, you focus on faith and trust. If it's choked up with frustration, we concentrate on acceptance. If it's choked up with misunderstanding, we go to compassion. When we can do those things, we are in God consciousness. God has given us the grace of his will for us in our lives. The only trick is, is that you, there are no rules, but you must do this every day to get it. It doesn't matter how much time you have in this program. I can tell the people I sponsor that are leaving out their prayer meditation on a daily basis because they bitch and whine all the time. And if we're doing this, we have love, trust, acceptance, compassion, understanding, all of the above in our life on a daily basis, and we can get through just today with freedom, joy, and happiness. Part of my prayer is every morning when I finish reading my books and saying my prayers, 
set prayers, and then I start my own prayers. The only prayer I say for me every day, and I got it from calling, and it helped me so much this summer when I had surgery. I would just lay there in so much pain with surgery, and I would say this prayer that I learned from calling. God, please restore my body, my mind, and my soul. I'd say that hundreds of times laying in that physical therapy place, physical rehab place. I said it while I was in the hospital. And when I get in pain, when I was in physical rehab and I would get in a lot of pain, and I did not want to take their medication because it was narcotics and I did not want to get addicted to it, and I talked to my sponsor about it, and I said, I don't want to take those pills they're giving me. But I'm in so much pain, I don't know what to do. And I have heard that prayer meditation will stop it. But I don't know how to get that deep into meditation. And I told her I was saying, asking all the time, God, please. Please restore my body, my mind, and my soul. Now, if I'm having an emotional day, I'll say, God, please restore my mind, my body, and my soul. If I'm out of God consciousness, I say, God, please restore my soul, my body, and my mind. Depends on what the problem is that day is what order I say it in. And I told my sponsor that, and at that time, it was the body. And I said, I'm asking God, please restore my body, my mind, and my soul. She said... I said, how do you get into deep meditation? And I'll tell you what she shared with me, and it worked. It worked. I'd fall asleep, which was a real miracle at that time because I didn't have to take all that stuff they were giving me. And I damn sure wasn't going to take it home, and I didn't, never did. And after I got home and if I would get in pain or when I had pain after I was home, I would lay in bed and I would do this meditation and it worked because I don't believe in taking narcotics or any kind of mind-altering chemicals into my home living with a sober alcoholic. And I believe anybody that takes any of that kind of medication can become an addict. Your body will get where it craves it, guaranteed. Not everybody can drink alcohol and become an alcoholic, but you put 30 people in a room, feed them narcotics every day for 30 days, and you'll have 30 people walk out of that room addicted to narcotics. I did not want to go there. And so what my sponsor told me to do is to lay very still and start at the top of my head and, and tell my head to relax. God, please help me relax my head. Okay, now I'm going to relax my neck. Now I'm going to relax my shoulders. Now I'm going to relax my chest and my arms. Now I'm going to relax my abdomen. Now I'm going to relax my hips. Now I'm going to relax my thighs, my knees, my calves, my ankles, my feet. And now I am going to go somewhere else. And she said to think of somewhere else that you've been or you would like to go and what it looks like. And laying in that physical rehab and then a few times at home, I went to Italy to see my daughter. And her and I were in Venus and we were on a gondola 
And we were going down the channels like we had. <laughs> the pain went away and I went to sleep. I literally left my body. And it works. If I am willing to say, God, please, thy will be done. God, please, that will be done. I'm not putting any conditions on it. I want God to do it the way he does it. I know my way doesn't work. This step works to put us on a higher plane. It has to be consistent, and it has to be on a daily basis. Because if we don't, and we get in a bad place, my will's so deep into it, that it's hard for God to show up. I have to keep that channel unchoked in order for God to work in my life. And so thy will be done is what works for me. Thank you.